0: morning. Well, you'll experience jet lag, Andy, this morning. We uh, started our travels at like 1 a.m. California time yesterday to get home and um, went to bed at like 7, 8 o'clock last night. So, but we had a good trip, a lot of fun. Um, don't be too impressed with the degree I earned. It took me 11 years to earn a three-year degree. So that's who, that's who I am. Before we jump into it... Um, Ladies, there's a great event coming up. The Tea and Testimony is this Saturday. You can still sign up. I only have tea like twice a year. I always forget about it. When I have it, I think, why did we throw this in the harbor all those years ago? This is, it's not not that bad. It's not as good as coffee, but it's not that bad. And so, ladies, there's a good event coming up. You can go to the website and join them for that. But we're starting uh, a series back in the book of John. And so we'll be in John chapter 8 today, if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. But the series title comes from John 11 that we just saw on the screen where Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so we'll cover that passage in a few weeks. In John chapter 8, Jesus continues the debate and argument with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right after the Feast of Tabernacles. He continues to kind of fight their their, um, their wrongness about the gospel. And I think a story that illustrates what we're going to find this morning is uh, over the last few weeks, my family participated in this thing called the Mail Order Mystery. And what they did is we told our kids that there was a treasure chest coming, but they had to solve the clues first if they wanted to open it. And so it was a six-week snail mail delivery of all of these interesting clues. We'll put a picture on the screen of all the things that our family got. They would run to the mailbox and get letters addressed to Abigail, Gideon, and Titus. And it would give them clues and maps and you know, fake magazines about pirates. And, and finally, a box of treasure came. And if they solved it, they used the right key to open it up. They had to discover the truth first if they wanted the treasure. And that's what we see here in the Scripture. If we want the gift, if we want the gift of the grace of God, then we need to know the truth about Jesus. And God's grace is beneficial in this life and in the life to come, but it has to be connected with the truth of who Jesus is. Remember in John chapter 1, Jesus was described in verse 14 as full of both grace and truth. And we see that in full display here. In John chapter 8, God's glory is on display. In the life of Jesus, we see both grace and truth. And so John chapter 8, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him, and He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This, this horribly awkward and uncomfortable story really illustrates all of our lives, We've all been caught in sin and experienced what this woman has experienced, but the grace and truth of Jesus brought to any of our sinful situations is amazing. Now, I'm going to put a picture of a 15th century painting of this story on the screen here, and I think that captured the situation well. There's one person with his finger pointed up at God, kind of saying, God is against this. Another person's counting all of her many sins on his finger. There's someone angrily looking at her, somebody smirking as they look at her. And even you see the the violence that's about to come as a guard in armor is holding her and has a stick in his hand, and Jesus is just saying, Slow down, everybody. And we see the grace and truth of Jesus on display. But we learn some characteristics about sin that we all share in this story. First, sin's discovery. Sin will always be found out, the scripture says. And we've all experienced being caught in our own sin. Now, the devil is going to lie to us and say, you will never get caught. Nobody's ever gonna know. So you get all the pleasure of the sin and you'll never be caught. And it's just a lie. The devil's a liar. He doesn't actually even mean that. He knows, and he wants you to get caught so you experience all the pain that comes along with sin. And so it is a lie to say, we will not be discovered in our sin. And this woman was caught in her adultery. Obviously, there was a man involved. Right. Obviously, there was someone else that they let off the hook, and so there's all kinds of wickedness going on in this trap that they're setting for Jesus. This man is just as guilty, even though this whole thing seems orchestrated. So sin's discovery is seen, but also sin's shame. They made her, in verse 3, stand before the crowd. They made her stand up there, not having dressed appropriately, caught and dragged out right there, and her shame is on full display. And we have felt that, when we're caught in sin, we feel so embarrassed, so shameful, we, 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 we regret what we have done. We say, Why did I ever do this? Now, we know the feeling of shame in our own sin, and then we see sin's punishment. They were right to say the law commanded that we would stone such women and men for this adultery. There are consequences for our sin. Broken relationships, ruined lives, We think it's such a private thing to sin, but it ruins so many other people's lives. There's consequences and there's punishment in this life and in the life to come. But then these these zealous religious rulers made a big mistake. You see, they brought this sinner to Jesus and said, now what do you say about it? And here we encounter sin's savior. And this is the hope that we all have in our sin is that there is a savior of our sin. Jesus, when he's encountered, says this in verse seven, "'Let any one of you who is without sin cast the first stone.'" So none of us would be able to throw a stone, right? And so one at a time, these people begin to leave. What Jesus is doing is reminding them they are all sinners and thus not fit to be judges. Their sin of setting this woman up as a trap for Jesus was wicked, and they were guilty in their own way. And so, one by one, they leave. What happens, to, what happens to a judge when they commit a crime, right? They have judicial immunity for the case that they're working on. They can't be sued for that case as a judge. But if they commit a crime outside of that case, they're treated like any other citizen, and they can be guilty of it. Jesus is reminding us that we all need to remember our own forgiveness. And the Scriptures say that if you've been forgiven much you'll love much. And they were unworthy to be judges. And so, one by one, they disappear. And In verse 9, it says, only Jesus was left. So, she's not off the hook because Jesus actually is without sin. So, He would be qualified to stone her according to these, these rules that He set. And yet, that's not what He does. We see the grace and truth of Jesus on full display. In verse 11, He says, well, where are these people that have condemned you? She can't find them. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. The grace of God for sinners. She experienced what we learn about in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because He already took all that condemnation. He already paid that penalty. And so Jesus is able to extend to her grace. He forgives her for her sins. And often we just want to camp on that because that's awesome. And we all feel guilty and so we want the grace of God. We want forgiveness. But we can't just talk about the grace. It's not Jesus saying, yeah, of course you're forgiven. I don't want anyone to be judged of sin. Of course you're forgiven. It's not grace as far as freedom to continue to sin. We see truth bundled in this as well. Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. That's the truth. God will forgive us, but there needs to be repentance, and grace will transform our lives now. You can't just get the the get-out-of-hell-free package and live however you want, because God will not be mocked. But also, God doesn't want you to live such a destructive lifestyle where you're constantly in shame and hurting the people around you. He wants to transform us. And so we see grace and truth. Jesus makes it clear here that all sexual immorality is wrong. And so, if we find ourselves today in sexual immorality and believing the lies of the enemy that we will not be caught, we need to repent of that. We need to confess that sin. Grace and truth, Jesus will forgive us, but we need to leave that lifestyle of sin is the clear message of the gospel that we see here. Now, where these Judges, these religious rulers got it wrong Is their zeal, and and they were were almost pleased to punish this lady. They were excited about it. But confrontation, when done right, has a lot more tears than anger. We feel so righteous in our anger, and, and there is a righteous anger that we can experience, but there should also be a brokenness in our heart, recognizing that we are sinners and other people are caught up in sin and not yet freed from it. So we want this gift of grace that Jesus has, but we need to know the truth if we're going to get that. Jesus offers to be our guide to the truth. We see this in verse 12. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We stumble around and trip when there is no light. There's a restaurant in Temecula that's kind of bringing that trend that started a few years ago of eating in absolute darkness. Have you heard of this? People, you are served your food completely in a room that is in darkness, that there's no moment of light when the waiter or waitress brings the food in. It's entirely in darkness. And so there's a lot of trust, you have to trust the person giving you the food, that it's something that's edible and not disgusting, not a plate full of worms or something. I mean, like, there's a lot of trust involved when you cannot see, they think it heightens the other senses. Would you do this? Would you go to Temecula and say, I'm gonna eat in absolute darkness? Many people are saying, I can't, I can't handle it. I need to know, I need to know the truth. But think about what we trust for truth. The number one thing that all of us trust for truth is our feelings and yet our feelings come and go. The Word of the Lord endures forever, but our feelings come and go. And we say, it's got to be right or wrong because this is how I feel about it. Well, that's a dangerous way to judge truth. We, we trust the news, even though there's obviously a bias that's there. We trust a YouTube education, right? Hey, this guy has 200 followers. Well, I mean, it's on the internet. It can't be wrong, right? And we just believe them because they're an influencer, even if There's logical fallacies all over the argument that they're trying to make. We trust so much. God is offering to be our guide and gives us the Scriptures as a clear way to determine truth. There are… There's big consequences for not believing the truth about Jesus. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. Here's what He says in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. This is is serious. Jesus is saying there's consequences to not believing in Him. And so we've got to decide what we're going to wager our life on. I'm no longer a betting man. No longer. (laughs) 20 years ago, New York University, I'm a student, I'm walking down Fulton Street, and I see my opportunity to get rich in life. Three-card money on a piece of cardboard laid out on the side of the streets. And they're sitting there flipping these cards over, and all of a sudden I realize I can do this. I can, make a, I can make a lot of money here. Some guy reaches over and bends the corner of a card without the dealer even noticing. I come to find out that's his buddy. But So he starts making every single play. He's guessing right. I'm like, I got to get in on this. So, so I throw down money and lose immediately. I'm like, what? Well, I, I, so I throw down more money. And now I'm like, oh my goodness, I lost twice. Now I need to make back my money. So I start throwing down more money. I ended up going to the ATM four or five times that morning and spending just... $10, $20 just on ATM fees. I, within minutes, I lost $250. And I was sure I would make the money. So I call a friend saying, I can't believe I'm losing. And he goes, hold on, I know the secret. I know the secret, just wait there. And then he brings his laptop down and pretends to fumble over the Wi-Fi. I'm like, hurry up before the police chase this valuable business away. You know, I, I, I gotta get... And, and he was so slow in telling me the secret that the police came and chased them away. I said, what have you done to me? He said, I saved you another $250 by stalling. I'm like, ugh. I wish I didn't have real friends like that, but I would have made the money back. But I decided then I'm not gonna be a betting man. And so whoever wins a sporting event doesn't really matter to me because I'll always eat hot wings and so I'm always a winner. But listen, when Jesus says that we're gonna die in our sins if we don't believe who he is, I am waging my life. I am betting on the life of Jesus for me. In the 16th century, there was an argument called uh, Pascal's Wager. It's not a proof for God. It's not a reason to believe in God, but it shows you the consequences of believing or not believing. If you do believe and God does exist, you go to heaven. If you do believe and God doesn't exist, well, nothing really happens. You die and, and, and disappear. If you don't believe and God exists, then you go to hell for rebelling against Him. If you don't believe in God doesn't exist, well, then nothing really happens, we've got to decide where we want to place ourselves on that bet. It's It's not a reason to believe, but it shows us we need to take this decision seriously about believing in Jesus. So the greatest question that we can ask, we see in verse 25, they say, who are you? Who are you? Tell us who you are. And the clarity that we need to answer that question of who Jesus is, is found in the crucifixion itself. Verse 28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have crucified Him, then you will know that I am He. This is what sets Christianity apart from other religions, that our God, the true God, came down to earth to relate to us, but then also to die in our place for us. If you lack a passion for Jesus, you lack a passion for God, you need to think on the crucifixion more. If you think following him is optional and his ways are just good suggestions, you need to think on the crucifixion. Why would Jesus die if our sins really weren't a big deal and we could really choose for ourselves how we handle them? The crucifixion tells us everything. And at this moment, in verse 30, it says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. And so to to believe in Jesus has some benefits. And, And the main one we see here is that those who believe in Jesus are freed from their sin. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But notice Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, he's talking to people who say they believe in Jesus, but he's giving them a further clarification saying, if you hold to my teaching, if you abide in my word, if you obey the scriptures, if you believe in me so much that you're willing to follow me and change your life, you realize you're walking in one way away from God and following Jesus is towards God. That means that something in our life has to change. If we'll do that, then we are really his disciples. And so these are people that believe but weren't ready to surrender their lives, their actions to Jesus. That's a dangerous place to be. God has rigged it to be an all-or-nothing experience with Him, because that's the only way we'll experience freedom from sin now, is if we truly believe. And so, our decisions start to change to honor God. The truth will set us free. So, if we want that grace and freedom from sin, we need to know the truth. The problem is, we don't realize how bad off we really are, right? We all think, ah, I'm I'm not doing that bad. Well, look at verse 33. They answered Jesus, well, we are Abraham's descendants. We're okay. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then they said, well, Abraham's our father, right? That's how they reacted. We see some characteristics of our spiritual condition in this passage I just read. The first is that we experience spiritual blindness apart from Jesus. He's the light of the world. We are spiritually blind. They said, we've never been slaves of anyone. I, it takes more than one hand to count all the nations that have enslaved the people of Israel. What are they ta- There's Romans standing right next to them in that moment. They are not free, but they don't see their need for Jesus. Their reaction wasn't wonderful. He'll set us free, but we're good. We don't need you. They were oblivious to their need. They were blinded to it. Now, it was kind of an inside joke on staff that I'm oblivious to what happens in my own office. And so the, the staff will try and tease me and they'll put like a big three-foot by two-foot picture on the wall, and then weeks later, if I haven't said anything about it, they're like, it's not being fun anymore. Look at this new picture we put in your office. I'm like, oh, that's, I haven't seen that. One time they took a picture of my family and cut out little circles of their faces and put them on my family's photo on my shelf, and three weeks later they said, this isn't even fun, look at their photo. I'm like, oh, that's cute, that's funny. I'm just a little oblivious to those changes that don't matter to me. Our sin should not be something we're oblivious to. We have the 10 commandments. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have to look far to recognize we are guilty sinners apart from Jesus. And there is spiritual bondage when we are caught up in sin. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And I'm sure you've felt this at some point in your life where you say, I'm just going to do this one more time and then I'll stop. I'm just going to privately do this. No one's going to know. And then I will stop. And, and you can't stop. And you feel that bondage of sin that it owns you, that you cannot do the things that you want to do. You will keep on going back to those sinful desires. And it's powerful. And I've experienced that in my life. And, and Jesus has to be the one that sets us free from that. There is spiritual bondage but there is, with Jesus, spiritual freedom. In verse 36, it says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It doesn't say, try harder to resist sin, although we should, by God's grace, do that. It says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And for some, it's the moment of their salvation that they are set free from sin, and others have to fight against temptation their entire life And God is still honored in that battle of them stumbling, but getting up again to repent of their sins and follow after Jesus. The son will set us free. But what is required is spiritual adoption. See, their defense is we're Abraham's descendants. Abraham is our father. We're the people of Israel. But they're illustrating that God is not their father, that they have not been adopted into God's family. Jesus says they're actually worse off than they think. His response to them saying, we're good, we're the people of Israel, is this in verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies, And these people are lying about Jesus and who He is, and they're trying to murder Him. And Jesus says, yeah, your actions show that your father is actually the devil. The Scriptures are clear. We are children of wrath if we are not children of God. We must be adopted into God's family because of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus makes it as clear as possible after sharing things are not looking good for people that they need salvation from sin's Savior. And so he tells them as clearly as ever that he is God. Now, it might not look clear to us, but it was very clear to them. Here's what Jesus said. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You see, Jesus is referencing a moment that God had with Moses in uh, Exodus chapter three, verse 14, where God made it very clear what his name was and what Moses should say his name was. God said to Moses, I am who I am this is what you should say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. This crowd knew that Jesus was saying that he was God, and so they were about to stone him for this blasphemy. Jesus claiming to be God only leads us to, I think, four different options as far as how we respond to this statement. I'll put all four options on the screen here, and we'll walk through them. The first option is, maybe Jesus didn't make this claim at all. Maybe this was written about Jesus hundreds of years later as people, you know, worked on the Bible. Well, then Jesus is really just a legend, and we shouldn't judge him for this claim that he is God. That was written in there. doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would Jewish people, the early followers of Jesus, in the one religion in the world that believed there was only one God, not many gods, now say there's two gods if they were making the whole thing up? It doesn't make a lot of sense. C.S. Lewis, in this article on the bottom of the screen, go to cornerstone.com slash options really spells out why it isn't a legend. So if it's not a legend, if he really did claim to be God, we're left with three options. If it's not true, if it's not true, then he did not know it was false, and he's nuts. He's a lunatic, right? If he's sitting there saying, I'm God, but he's not God, he's crazy, and then why are we look, listening to all the good things that we see him saying? Or maybe he knew it was false, and he's a liar. Well, that's wicked. So why are we saying Jesus is a good moral teacher if he's saying, I am God, I'll save you, and he's lying about the whole thing? Our options are either he's a legend, he didn't say it. If he did say it and it wasn't true, he's a lunatic or a liar. But if he made this claim and it was true, then he is our Lord. Those are the options that we're given. This is what we have to choose from because Jesus makes it clear, not just in this passage, that he is God. God. So how does grace and truth work in our life? We saw a wicked mock courtroom scene in the middle of a street to start this chapter. Well, we all find ourselves in a righteous courtroom. We are guilty, just like this woman and the man caught in adultery. We find ourselves guilty, and we will be punished for our sin unless we allow Jesus to do something about it. In 1 John 1, 1 John 2, it says, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, who is our judge, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We can choose to allow Jesus to go before us to the Father and and be our advocate. And here's how I imagine what He would say if we allow Him to be our advocate. Father, I know this one has sinned and violated our commands. He is guilty as charged. However, you have said that my sacrifice is sufficient payment for the debt He owes. My righteousness was applied to his account when he trusted in me for salvation and forgiveness. I have paid the price so he can be pronounced not guilty. There's no debt left for him to pay. The scriptures make it clear this is what it means that Jesus is our advocate. And many people in this room have said that they want Jesus to go on their behalf to the Father. Many people have said, I believe that Jesus is God. What he claimed is true. He died on the cross for my sins and was risen again, and I believe that. And so I'm not sinless now. My sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus, and we can have a confidence that we are safe in the hands of God because of who Jesus is. But if you haven't made that decision, you've you've got those four options. He's a legend, he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. If you've decided that Jesus is Lord and you want to begin to follow him, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So if we'll all just close our eyes and bow our heads and just be prayerful for the people that are around us. If you would like to begin following Jesus, just slip up your hand so I can lead you in a a simple prayer expressing that. Whether you're in the balcony or down low, I see some hands going up. Just raise your hand and I'll lead you in a simple prayer expressing your heart of following God. Great, I see hands going up. Awesome. If you raised your hand and if you believe this, you could pray something like this. You can say it out loud or in the quietness of your own heart, just say it sincerely. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me because of who Jesus is. I believe He's God. He died on the cross for my sins and rose again three days later. So make me a new creation because of Jesus. Give me strength to follow after him, to repent of my sins, and to walk with my God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if that expresses your heart, then we want to rejoice with you that you've made that decision. But that's not something that you should keep private. That's a big deal. It requires some life change. And so if you'll text the word journey to that number, that just lets us know that we need to support you in this but you can also come over here and talk with Pastor Raul. He wants to give you a Bible and just pray with you as you start your new journey with the Lord. And maybe you need prayer about all the other things, all the other chaos that's going on in this world. This world's scary. A week after my family left Chicago, just last week, and we were saying, man, this city's a lot safer than we thought it was. This was a beautiful city. A week later, in the same spot we were standing, a kid was shot. We live in a scary world. We have anxiety. We have pain. And if you need to bring that pain to the Lord, we want to help you with that. And so come forward so that we can pray with you. Our prayer team will be available up front right now. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.